Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we give you, as promised, the last installment of the Winnie Ruth Judd saga. Hell yeah. In which Ruth escapes from captivity seven times. <laughs> which blew my mind at the end of last episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. Do your butts. Okay. It's utter chaos in this house right now. I hope you guys are doing well wherever you are listening to this, but neither of us slept at all last night. There's been about eight car accidents outside of our building and, and one leaf blower that usually comes at like nine but right now is coming at two it's and helicopter helicopter our cat is completely <laughs> losing his mind so i don't know we're gonna see if we can even get through this, this we can it's gonna be so good no i know we got this we'll pull you're not it even together. gonna be able to understand what happens next well i hope i can understand no, it. no you won't <laughs> <laughs> complete chaos as promised all right muriel you want to warn these people what's what all right this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and you don't want to hear about those kind of things just listen to a different podcast also uh-huh. if you're listening to this episode before listening to part one and part two. Oh, right. This is important to say. SOL, man. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and listen to the last two episodes. <laughs> I'm not going to explain anything. <laughs> uh, also, you know, if I'm because of that, you have at least listened to one, if not two other episodes of ours. So this part maybe is redundant, but we're going to joke. We're going to curse. If you don't like those things, turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? Let's get it over with. Okay. Let's get started. Okay, well, adding to the chaos, I did not write down my recap of the last two episodes. I'm just going to freestyle it off the top of my head. Okay, great. And then I have a little clean cleanup afterwards. Okay, good. Okay. So basically, this woman, Ruth, murdered her two best friends. It was maybe in self-defense, maybe not. Either way, she ended up with their dead bodies in her trunks, shipping them across the country with her to Los Angeles. It really seems like she wasn't the person that chopped up the bodies. We don't know. She has this great sort of like, I was an innocent, poor me type of lady who got trapped in this horrible miscarriage of justice and her defense lawyer sucked and blah, blah, blah. But she's kind of good at every turn of still killing people and you know, taking their bodies across the country and then being like, oh, I blacked out for four days. Oops, here I am. Oh, right? so you're pretty cynical about this. You know, lady. I just think that it could go either way. You know, who knows if she's really this poor little prim and proper girl or maybe she's got some bloodthirstiness and some conniving behind her. I don't know. I don't want to sell her short in either direction. Okay, you know so what I mean? instead of a recap, we uh, got kind of mixed thoughts about the podcast. <laughs> well, currently, so currently she's on death row. <laughs> Okay. I got it. I got okay, it. You're gonna do the, okay. Muriel's going to do the, <laughs> the heavy lifting. Like, I'm going to wing it. I don't believe in story. <laughs> this guy, Happy Jack, is a monster. <laughs> <laughs> you do it. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. So, after a pretty shoddy trial, uh-huh. Ruth Judd was convicted on February 17th, 1933, and sentenced to hang for the murder of one of her best friends, Anne Leroy. Yes. Now, after the conviction, she lost both of her appeals. There were thousands of letters written to the Arizona Board of Pardons and Paroles on her behalf. So, mm-hmm. you know, clergymen, state senators, like all kinds of people were writing in letters saying, right. you need to look at this case again, right? Or you need to give this lady a parole or whatever. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, despite the fact that after hearing her testimony, a grand jury recommended Ruth's death sentence be commuted, Despite the fact that a group of the original trial jurors came forward to admit what amounted to juror misconduct mm-hmm. during Ruth's, Ruth's trial, despite the fact that the judge who presided over Happy Jack Halloran's preliminary trial, that's her old boyfriend, mm-hmm. right? The judge that presided over that trial declared that based on Ruth's testimony and her supporting evidence, Ruth had acted in self-defense. Yeah. So Ruth, you know, he says, I believe you enough that I'm going to let your boyfriend go. Right. Who pretty convincingly might have helped you move these bodies, right? Right. So despite all of that stuff, the Arizona Board of Pardons and Paroles unanimously voted to uphold Ruth's death sentence. Her new hanging date was scheduled for April 21st, 1933, just a few weeks away from the date of their ruling. I like my recap better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm just shooting from the hip. It was great. (laughs) So that's just what we remember, the main salient points, plus Nick's opinions from the last episode. (laughs) Uh, So Uh at this point, we're at kind of the beginning of April. Mm -hmm. The hanging is just weeks away. Mm -hmm. And there was one last option for Ruth to avoid being executed. Escape from jail? She had to be declared insane. Oh, so now they're going back to the insanity play. Yes. There's one thing they can do. Basically, Uh without the parole board recommending that her uh, sentence be commuted, the governor can't pardon her. Okay. So the governor was really kind of pro-Ruth at the time, but Mm -hmm. the parole board was not. Mm -hmm. So her only option was to be declared insane because Mm -hmm. the state wouldn't execute someone who was declared like became insane right on oh really row. so if you got sentenced to death because they figured you weren't insane but then death row made you insane right like interesting post conviction uh-huh so i'll kind of go i get this, it right, yeah. right right all right so ruth was actually granted the sanity hearing nine days before her scheduled execution mm-hmm. so little less like about a week and a half really right? up to the wire right the warden Overseeing her imprisonment was the only person who could technically request the hearing. So out of anyone in the judicial system, hmm. that's the only person who could legally say, hey, yeah. I have her in my prison. I've watched her. She's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're on death row, Make going friends with crazy, the yeah, you're really going insane for an audience of one. <laughs> I don't know if it's still like that today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's not. But <laughs> that just... <laughs> Anyway, this warden, he uh-huh. goes to bat for Ruth, right? He believes she was being wrongly executed. So the warden told officials, 
Ruth went insane after being rejected by the parole board. Whoa, you're saying he actually didn't think she was insane. He just didn't like the way she was treated, so he acted like she was insane. Nobody knows where the truth lies. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this. Mm -hmm. This book is really fantastic. Our source book, The Trunk Murderess uh, by Jana Bombersbach. But there's like a little conjecture in here. Like there's a little bit of Mm -hmm. like grayness. Mm -hmm. So the idea is the governor was really pro-Ruth. And a lot of people in the legislature were really pro-Ruth. They wanted her sentence to be commuted. But the parole board right. was stuck not doing it, right? You said this. We still don't know why exactly. They well, just don't want to be seen as soft on uh, bloody murderers. There's a kind of like a, there's a lot of things at play. I mean, they don't want to have a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. And their reputation is being built off of being this perfect town. So it's mm-hmm. this bloody national you know, they're supposed to be like the Phoenix Oasis, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this tourism destination. Right. So a lot of it had to do with just really bad press. I think the other part was, is that the people who were convicting Ruth yeah. were like the DA, you know? Yeah, the most Maricopa important. Maricopa County. <laughs> yeah, like, they yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. say that they're judges and these people running mm-hmm, for higher mm-hmm. positions and all of these people made a really bad mistake during the trial. Right. Like what you're doing is you're saying, this is kind of a story of three women who hooked up with a man who was connected to all mm-hmm. of the Phoenix elite. Right. It's a really quickly moving, like quickly growing city. Yeah. And there's a ton of politics involved in that and a lot <laughs> yeah, of yeah. money coming in. And so yeah, people don't yeah. want, I think it, it's not just bad optics. It's yeah. also like, you know, the parole board, right? Yeah. The parole board are the same people who said like, oh yeah, I'm friends with that like shitty mayor you right, know, from totally. the other town who like, you know, tainted yeah. the jury and that guy didn't get in trouble. And they're friends with happy Jack Halloran. Like they all have connections. Right. And you were saying a big open secret in Phoenix and the way things ran was this was a great place for like businessmen to have their mistresses. Yeah. And here you have three mistresses killing each other right. and like ruining everyone's life. Happy Jack's life has been ruined. Dr. Brown's life uh, apparently has been ruined or he's actually dead at this point in the story. Yeah. Right. You know, from a heart attack, maybe nefarious influences or not. And they're like, no, you should, you get to play golf. It's really hot in the summer. And then you get to cheat on your wife when they're out in a pleasanter place in the country and everything is cool. And they're like, but that, you know, narrative gets disrupted if there's also murders is, you know, killing each other. murdering each other. Yeah, there you go. Murders is mistering each other. (laughs) Yeah. It's very, um... True. That's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah, you set up the town of Phoenix as a big, like, we sweep things under the rug kind of place. Right. I mean, and it's also, like, the the time and the culture and all that kind of stuff. But, yes. So, at the end of all this, Mm -hmm. the idea is that the warden, potentially with a nice wink from the governor, recommended a sanity hearing for Ruth. Oh, okay. So, maybe Ruth was working and maybe the governor was. Maybe. It's all soft. But what we know... Mm -hmm is that the other thing going on is that Ruth seems to be, like, by all accounts, a good friend, a good worker, a uh-huh. hard worker, and well-liked. Yeah, she's But when a, she gets the mm-hmm. spotlight, this chick just wants to air all her laundry. Yeah. So she kind of, every time she actually gets a little 
hate to say this. Yeah, I right. she has a little power in these trials. Yeah, yeah. She just starts talking about everything that's bothering her. <laughs> yeah. And it's, so she sounds really crazy. Right. So they'll say, what happened next? Did yeah. you take the arm out of the trunk? And yeah. she'll say, well, you know, <laughs> the governor told me I could have two beds. You know, I mean, she, it's like things she, yeah, yeah. she just doesn't know how to like filter herself. Right. And I think she also gets like, it sounds like based on her quotes. Yeah. She just <laughs> It's really hysterical sure. when in these high conflict things. And it makes sense because she's about to be executed. She's right? about to be executed. She grew up, you know, the daughter of a minister. Like she was expected to sort of show up and be a good girl her whole life. She's she. I think it's very easy to say, maybe regardless of anything, uh-huh. like no sort of like conspiracy to get her off. Uh-huh. Right. That she might have just been acting really nutty because right. like the quotes are yeah. really wild and yeah. she just can't control herself in court and that has happened consistently throughout you well know. whether or not she acted in self-defense she did a bunch of stuff that seems pretty insane after the bodies were dead in that apartment to me it feels it feels just like straight up like like cartoonish hysteria where you're just yeah like, right well i'll just get the you know, you're yeah, just like, oh my right. God, yeah. just take the So anyway, right. okay. so that's also a thing. So they get this sanity hearing together, mm-hmm. right? It's nine days before she's supposed to be executed. They get it granted. And remember, the hearing is also a long shot, the sanity hearing, because her conviction is literally based on the court ruling that she is sane. Yeah. The yeah. reason why she's, you know, like, so yeah, now they right. have to prove something that was just really recently proven. Like, they have to disprove yeah, something right. that's proven to be true. Right. So the sanity hearing commenced on April 14th, 1933, seven days before her scheduled execution. After the first day of the hearing, everyone involved realized that the sanity hearing would take too long. It's going to take at least like 10 days (laughs) and that Ruth would be executed before its conclusion. So they petitioned the parole board to extend her execution date so as not to execute her during her own, during her own sanity hearing. That seems reasonable. And they received no response. (laughs) They're like, sorry, it takes us nine days to respond to these kind of letters. So one day goes by, two days go by. Three days go by, four days go by, and three days before Ruth's scheduled execution date, the board begrudgingly moved her date to April 28th Okay. to give them the full 10 days. Okay. So Ruth had, you know, these 10 days to prove she was insane and she went off right <laughs> just eating her own poop crying uh-huh. yelling mumbling she had this handkerchief she would like wrap around her hands till her hands were like you know uh, tight, yeah, yeah. Like, tightly unwrap and wrap just a whole nine yards yeah at one point she screamed that damn jack hollering i would like to take his head and break it against the ceiling and splatter his brains like a dish of oatmeal. So that's the kind of stuff she was saying. <laughs> against the ceiling too, man. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a hefty move. That's like a good like Mortal Kombat finisher move. Just yeah, smash yeah, him yeah. against the ceiling. She was mad about like psychiatrists. She uh-huh. was mad at the psychiatrist who said she was sane, right? Yeah. But she was also really mad at the psychiatrist who said she was insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh Anyone who was trying to testify on her behalf, uh-huh. she was mad at her brother, who apparently had shown up to the hearing, but she thought he didn't show up because he was wearing a disguise. He was wearing a fake beard and sunglasses. <laughs> Why? So she wouldn't see him? I think so. 
maybe press wouldn't see uh-huh. him. I I don't know. But, but the was, disguise fooled her enough to be like, "Fuck my brother!" My brother He's like, "Oh, Ruth, I'm right here." Yeah, they said it was like a really awkward point in the trial because it was like obviously her brother. Like yeah. everybody knew the beard was really fake uh-huh. looking, you know. Uh-huh. And then she even turned on her aging parents yeah. who had been standing unquestionably by her side, you know. So <sighs> she was just a ball of rage. So and I'm I- still going to go with either way. She, this whole thing could be an elaborate act from the very beginning, the whole like acting weird at the train station. And, Oh, I just went into the TB, you know, sanitation facility for four days. And then I lived in the department store. And- you know, I, I think that that's interesting. I mean, we'll talk about that maybe yeah. at the end about what's an act and what's not an act, yeah. but that that's interesting. I mean, You'll see what she does okay. later. All right. Okay, so after this bonkers hearing, Ruth was declared insane within minutes after its conclusion. <laughs> they just said, yep. So this doesn't commute mm-hmm. her sentence, remember, mm-hmm. but rather kind of gives her a stay of execution. All right. And so she wouldn't be executed as long as she was insane. They just saved her life, essentially. And on April 24th, 1933, Ruth was taken to the Phoenix, Arizona State Hospital for the insane. Mm. In the 1930s, these types of institutions weren't about treatment. They mm. were about stashing bodies. <laughs> Sweeping them under the rug. There's, I mean, this is true for all yeah. of these types of institutions across yeah, the country, totally. not just Phoenix, but they were basically houses for the mentally ill, mentally disabled, orphans, mm-hmm. addicts, alcoholics, the elderly, uh, people who had seizures, you know, just kind of a huge list of things. Just a horribly inhumane way to keep people who other people didn't want to take care of. Right, or couldn't, right, yeah, or right. couldn't take care of themselves. So it's a big sure. catch-all. So all those people are mixed in together with women accused of brutally murdering two people and chopping up their bodies and putting them in a trunk. So they're yeah. all in the same gen pop, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1933, the Arizona State Hospital for the Insane was a dirty, overcrowded, understaffed, notorious place. It was violent. There was a lot of abuse and corruption going on. And, you know, in Phoenix at the time, there were no homes for the elderly who couldn't pay or facilities for people with special needs. So in Phoenix in particular, because it's a newer city, mm. there were really, really weren't any other institutions. Mm-hmm. And it was just one size fits all, like this last stop for anyone who couldn't care for themselves, like we said. In the 40s, the hospital got a makeover. Basically, the water pipes disintegrated because the building was in such bad repair that ha- they had this massive typhoid outbreak. Oh, man. And so people in the town were outraged. They said, we shouldn't be treating people like that. Yeah. Like, let's, you know, there are huge amounts of firings, um, major reform in the place. Yeah. And change did happen. By the 1950s, it was the most overcrowded public insane asylum in North America. <laughs> So, so that's where change Ruth, happened, but maybe not for the better. Definitely not for the better. <laughs> Did they fix the water at least? I think they fixed the water, but I don't think they fixed literally anything else. Okay. All right. So, so this is where mm-hmm. Ruth landed. Right. So it's bad. Yeah. Shelter from the storm. Whatever okay. that is. Well, it sounds like she's getting sheltered inside the storm. Yeah. So when Ruth entered the hospital's doors, the place held 277 patients and spent around 61 cents per day on that person's room, board, and medical care. Mm-hmm. That's about $10 a day in today's money, but that's like 
absurdly yeah, low, right? right? Yeah. Like for comparison, prisoners in prison got 70 cents a day for their needs. Mm. So prisoners were actually getting more for their care. Yeah. Part of the reason why the hospital could keep down costs is because it was actually self-sufficient. So it had like a sewing factory and a giant laundry room. They had a farm with dairy cows mm. and hogs, right? And they that had, fed the people there. Right. And they had a bakery. They had everything. And it all at least partially depended on the labor of its patients. Mm -hmm. So from the start, Ruth came in there and she was just an incredibly hard worker. You know, her role in the hospital more resembled a member of the paid staff than a patient. As long as they don't ask her to type anything. (laughs) She's like, I'm going to have to get you that one next week. (laughs) It's going to take me several days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, she spent her days making beds, bathing patients, doing their hair. She did a lot of nursing. Mm. And part of her energy came from the rumors that she wouldn't be in the hospital for long. She wanted to be a model prisoner because she knew her pardon was coming soon. Mm -hmm. And the only time any staff ever saw her acting kind of wild out, a little insane, was during the hospital's Sunday night dances. So on Sunday night, the hospital would have like cookies and punch and have these open dances. Mm -hmm. Ruth would help the girls in the girls' dormitory get all dialed up, and the hospital would open to the public for this little dance party. So people from the community could come in and like visit with people that they knew were in the asylum, you know, like because their parents are in there sometimes. You know, people would come in there and visit with people and like dance and communicate or whatever. Right. Probably there's a pretty small minority of people there that are actually convicted of a crime. Right. I mean, it's definitely not for the criminally insane. Right. Ruth Ruth is like, you know, really sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh So the reason why Ruth would act insane at these dances, you have a guess? Oh, did Happy Jack show up? Happy Jack Halloran loved to come to the dances and make fun of Ruth in public. What a... Pointing and laughing at her until she went absolutely apeshit and had to be carried away back into the hospital. Every Sunday? Yes. Eventually, eventually Jack was banned from the dances. That should have been immediate. And then his ass died six years later. So, you know, (laughs) chapters close on Jack. I'm not trying to root for the death of anybody anytime. But But also, isn't at this point, his life has like crumbled, right? Yeah, but he's just making sure to stick it to her in the institution. That's what he's trying to do. (laughs) What an absolute dick. But Jack didn't block her shine, right? She kept shining. And eventually, Ruth showed the world she contained multitudes by opening a straight-up beauty parlor in the state hospital Uh that ended up drawing clients in from all over Maricopa County. (laughs) Oh, what? Hell yeah. (laughs) So Ruth mentioned she's like this hard worker. She's real pretty. She's young. She's a murderer. (laughs) And she's mentioned offhandedly that to someone in like a nurse, right? Uh-huh. That she'd like to start a beauty parlor for the patients. Ruth had always been really poor, but she always had this desire to look fashionable. So she learned how to style her hair herself, which was mm-hmm. way more elaborate back in the day. They had like curlers and setting lotions and uh-huh. you did your hair like once a week and kept it in a bond, you know, like <laughs> yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. Uh-huh. Not just like 
ponytails and dying <laughs> roots. <laughs> yeah, all you ladies just letting yourselves go with your messy hair. I know. Right now, I'm in. I don't even know what my hair looks like. <laughs> it's, it doesn't look like hair. No, but it's it, pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, through the grapevine, a local beautician heard about Ruth's plan. Right? She's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, that's so sweet." You know. Let's help her out. So she got a bunch of other beauticians to donate a massive amount of styling tools and products like curling irons mm-hmm. and hairpins, brushes, sprays, and shampoo, like everything, right? Mm-hmm. And just to be straight up, you know, Ruth had already been doing people's hair. Like she had, that was a big part of, you know, what she brought to the people living in the hospital uh-huh, uh-huh. as this patient nurse right yeah, is yeah. she was bathing people and she wanted to bring some joy into people's life she right, always yeah. felt like you know when she was broke and she was wearing her shrunken coat as a cape yeah you know it always made her feel good to have her at least she could control doing her hair you know yeah totally and you were saying she helped all the girls get pretty for the dances and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. and she would work with the elderly patients who were there too and set their hair and kind of you know because mm-hmm. nobody was even brushing it totally know? So Ruth would do at least a hundred heads of hair in a day at the hospital. How? Just brushing them, going through it. You know, she's not maybe doing a whole, you know, thing, but she was doing it by herself. Yeah. And she had all these people lined up, and she was kind of like knocking out all their little heads. (laughs) And eventually, the nurses started having Ruth do their hair too. Mm -hmm. Ruth used their little twenty-five cent donations from the nurses to buy more products. And then word got around and more and more women started coming in to the hospital for hair appointments with their daughters. So it was this huge thing for a minute. She was in the papers. Yeah. Like she had, this is like the next year after she had gone to the <laughs> yeah, just like right away. Yeah. I mean, all of this has happened in the span of like, I think three years. Uh-huh. Like is she making money? Does she have any? She doesn't to spend ever it? keep the money. Okay. She just uses it to make the salon bigger. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's where she invests it. So it really is this like charity, sure, in a sense. But it also is this like, you know, shining star for her. That's really yeah, cool. definitely. So her business or whatever her beauty parlor grew so big that Phoenix area hairstylists complained to the board of cosmetology because Ruth was poaching all their clients. <laughs> yeah. And she's unlicensed or right. whatever. So the board yeah. shut her down because, uh, for operating with, oh, man, haters going to hate, yeah. dude, you gotta step your game up. And this was the beginning of the end for model prisoner. Ruth. <laughs> they took away the one thing she loved. That was like, and also uh-huh. the years are starting to tick by, mm-hmm. right? So she's thinking I'll get out soon. Yeah. And the years pass by and they pass by. And then she builds a little life trying to make the best of it, waiting for her to get out, you know, and nobody's releasing. Her. I do apologize. I think maybe I forgot or I'm confused about something. I thought the idea was just that they gave her, they stayed her execution or whatever. So as long as she's still crazy, they won't execute her. But if she appears saying they will. I think that she had a lot of advocates who mm-hmm. thought that eventually her sentence would be commuted. So like a okay. lot of people disagreed with the parole board's decision. Uh-huh. And if the parole board could be swayed in another direction, mm-hmm. then the governor and recommend her pardon, then yeah. the governor could then pardon her. So this whole time she's doing all the hair and doing everything. They're still considering her insane. Yes. So maybe in that way, Happy Jack showing up was actually doing her a big favor. Maybe. By making her seem insane. I don't think she would think that, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So... 
she's in the asylum and things are starting to look a little bleak, right? They take mm-hmm. away the beauty salon and then they also start taking away some of her privileges. She had a lot of extra privileges because she was just so competent, yeah. you know, and she was such a huge, she was doing like the work of three people. Uh-huh. She was just working so much mm-hmm. and was completely unpaid. And so she got a few extra privileges. She could walk the grounds freely and do a few things. And yeah. some of that got a little eroded, a little slipped away. Uh-huh. And after six years, Ruth was like, fuck it and she left (laughs) (laughs) okay escape number one i've been waiting for this so her first escape was october 24th 1939 Mm -hmm. this is eight years to the day after she surrendered herself to the los angeles police department for murdering sammy and ann yeah ruth made a fake body out of old boxes and bottles and tissue paper and put it in her bed. It was very convincing. That is the most classic escape move of all time. The nurses didn't figure out she was gone for like 12 hours. Wow. They didn't find her. So Ruth bounced out of the asylum. She went to go visit her sick father. Her father was very ill at the time. Mm. And then she didn't really have any other ideas or money. So she hid out in a cornfield on the hospital grounds for like six days. Oh, so she didn't even get far. She didn't really even technically leave the hospital. (laughs) So when she got out, the state was in an uproar. They launched this manhunt for her with bloodhounds, everything, Mm -hmm. but they never found her. Did Hold on, sorry. Did she get some peace with her father? You said she kind of turned against her parents at the end, who during her whole trial actually moved to Arizona and were like really broke to just... support her they were like she's crazy i mean mm-hmm. who knows this girl's yeah. in her, i mean she was under a lot of pressure i'm sure yeah. it, there was no ultimatum issued or anything like that and the book didn't uh, hint at them having a peaceful reconciliation at the end when she went to- well she came to go see her father yeah. and she got to see him you know on his deathbed essentially yeah. and 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 comfort him and her mom was really happy to see her that, okay that all is true okay all right so she's out in the cornfield and police don't find her, even after this big man manhunt, even though she's in the grounds of the hospital. So uh, eventually Ruth just yeah. gives up uh-huh. and walks back into the asylum. <laughs> she's barefoot, dirty, hungry. Yeah. She had used her girdle as a brace because she sprained her ankle. So she had her girdle all off. It was wrapped around <laughs> her leg. And... You know, obviously everyone is so mad. Yeah. So they grab Ruth, they put her in a straight jacket, they knock her around a little bit, and then they put her in solitary confinement for a month. Mm-hmm. Ruth would escape again that same year, then again in 1947, again in 1951, twice in 1952, and for the last time on October 8th, 1962, just eight days short of the 31st anniversary of Anne and Sammy's murder. Wow. So she's in her 50s at this point. So this is the scope of everything. Wow. So yeah. at first, with the first escape, uh-huh. the city was terrified. Police were releasing the hounds, right? Search parties were flooding the streets. Parents were warning their children about her snatching them up in the night. Like yeah. kids remember their parents being like, wait, watch out for Winnie Ruth Judge. It's going to yeah. get you. Yeah. And uh, rumors were all over town. They were flying about how Ruth's rich friends in high places were giving her limo rides to secret hideaways. But <laughs> yeah. with each subsequent esta- uh, escape, <laughs> yeah. 
eventually the public hysteria waned. <laughs> they just didn't care anymore. They're like, she's probably, did you guys check the cornfield? Her escapes were marked with the newspaper headline, quote, Winnie's gone again. <laughs> That's the one they would recycle towards the end. And are each of these escapes just sort of like, no one's looking, she just climbs over the fence? Well, why don't you stop asking fucking questions? Shh. Okay, great. <laughs> right. So how was she escaping? <laughs> You mean I asked the perfect question yes, right here, you. right then. I nailed it. Okay. How is she yeah. escaping? How is she escaping? Her ass just had a key to the front door. <laughs> One of the nurses in the hospital just gave her a key. And <laughs> for over 30 years, her survival kit was a portable radio mm-hmm. and a coin purse. She'd use the radio to monitor police reports while she was on the run. Mm-hmm. And the little coin purse had a false top. And inside, she could hide her key. So if you open the coin yeah. purse, you couldn't see it. And that's where she hid her key for over 30 years. And it's just the perfect plan. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. So after her her first escape yeah. and her first month in solitary confinement, Ruth was released into the hospital's general population again. But she was no longer the hospital darling. Mm. The hospital was a corrupt and a cruel place. And two weeks after she was released from solitary confinement, she became the target of a nasty joke. So this is the type of stuff that nurses would do all the time to Mm. patients. So a nurse walks into the dormitory and she makes an announcement. She says, all the residents are going to be moved to a brand new wing of the hospital. Every single person except for Ruth. And Ruth says, you know, why? Why am I not going? And the nurse says, quote, they're going to hang you, and I hope they, that I see them do it. Now, none of that was true. Right. It's all a lie. So what they like to do, these nurses sometimes, is walk into rooms full of people with mental illnesses and tell them fake things, <laughs> which I feel like is... <laughs> it's sadistic. It's sadistic. So yeah. there's that is... A lot of the vibe kind of uh-huh. going on. Sure. She was at the top of that pecking order for a while, mm-hmm. but after her first six years, she kind of dropped lower and lower. God, I mean, that's just like, I guess, where the stereotype comes of the nurse ratchets of the world right, or whatever. Right. And these, you know, terrible 60 minute stories you see of people in like nursing homes that abuse the elderly and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's been around for a long time, but yeah. definitely it was unregulated, you know, in the 30s. It wasn't regulated in the same way. Ah, it's just cruel. Yeah. So, right, Ruth uh-huh. has just gotten out of sol- solitary confinement. She walks into this room. This lady's telling her that she's going to hang. And Ruth is like, not today, Satan, right? Yeah. She escaped that night again <laughs> on December 4th, 1939. She bounced. Yeah. She took her key, got out of the <laughs> asylum. She went to a local minister's house that mm-hmm. she knew of. They were not home. Mm-hmm. And she just jacked them for like a coat and a box of crackers and like some scarves and towels. She drank all the milk they had in the house. And then she headed down the railroad tracks, walking 180 miles Whoa. to Yuma, Arizona. Damn. So hospital staff figured out she was missing about a half an hour, just like 30 minutes after she left. Police sent the bloodhounds out. They did their whole thing. They did not catch her. Ruth finally got to Yuma days later, starving, and her legs were torn to shreds by hiding from hiding in the bushes. Mm -hmm. So she knew she looked like a hot mess. She knew she was a wanted woman. 
but she had to eat something. So she was sitting out there in broad daylight, staring at this gas station, watching people walk in, buy stuff, and walk out like snacks and stuff. Yeah. She had a tiny little bit of money. So as casually as she could, she walked into the gas station and bought some buttermilk. And then she sat on the steps of the Yuma courthouse to drink it. Yuma police took one look at the ragged, scratched-up, half-starving chick chugging buttermilk on the courthouse steps, and they knew they had found their lady. (laughs) Ruth was in a Yuma jail cell when police decided to call the mayor's wife on Ruth's behalf. The mayor's wife, the mayor of Yuma, Uh had been an advocate of Ruth's. So the police allowed Ruth to go take a hot bath and have breakfast at her house before she went back to jail. Whoa, doing the mayor's wife a favor. That's like kind of how the politics is. Yeah, sure. Like that's why like people feel that it's it's just so conceivable that there's a cover up because people do get special privileges. Yeah, yeah. Throughout the story. So Ruth, she takes a hot bath. She has a couple of poached eggs. She says goodbye to the mayor's wife. They take her back to the hospital. And then when she returned, she was put into solitary confinement until 1942. So they put her in solitary confinement for two straight years. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot, a lot. a lot, a lot. Yeah. And for the record... All that time in the hospital so far, eight years in total, no one thought she was crazy except for sometimes when she was dealing with Happy Jack at those dances. Yeah. And the people who worked with her really did all think she was great. Like later in life, people remember her as this warm, sweet person who was great with kids. There's a woman, she came to the asylum as a little girl. So an orphaned little girl and her baby sister were sent to the Arizona State Hospital for the insane in the mid 1930s after Mm. Ruth got there and they were sent there because their mother had a mental breakdown and was sent to a separate hospital. So they got shipped down to Arizona. That doesn't sound uh, like a good way to do that on any level. Right. We're talking about a three-year-old toddler and a baby. So three-year-old Diane Gale and her little baby sister were the only black people in the asylum at the time. And In interviews later in life, Diane Gale talks about being essentially informally adopted by Ruth in the Mm -hmm. hospital. She said Ruth bathed her, she fed her, she sewed her clothes, and she took care of her in this way, like a really caring, loving kind of um, developmental way. You know, like mm. she was basically saying that there's so many kids in this asylum. Yeah. There's a whole wing for children. Yeah. And there were kids in the asylum, in the hospital, who didn't have any interaction with people. So mm. it's not just the motherly thing, but it's literally like her bridge to humanity. Right, exactly. Yeah. And she credits publicly Ruth Judd for giving her her bridge back to hum- humanity. She said, mm. she helped me survive being in this hospital, yeah. only minority in this hospital. And then. She got adopted, and when she got adopted, she totally made the transition really well. She had mm-hmm. this great life. She has a big family. She's a grandmother. Yeah. You know, so Ruth was definitely doing meaningful work inside the hospital. Yeah, um, for her fellow patients. I mean, it sounds like the nurses, you know, some like her, were some don't. Cruel, and yeah, sometimes, right. yeah. and some of them gave her keys to come and go as she pleased. Kind of chaos. Well, Ruth also had wanted to have children for years. 
I mean, that right, was like exactly. her initial heartbreak. And the first, as I remember it, sign that maybe she actually was really mentally unstable was when she had her miscarriages and right. sort of would kind of pretend that their kids were alive. Right. Yeah. And and in the asylum, in the hospital, you know, she really kind of reverted to this like caretaker place. So a lot of people, we'll talk about that a little later, but mm-hmm. a lot of people came forward during the scope, like the scope of her life mm-hmm. in that place and said, you know, she really changed my life mm-hmm. and my experience there. So anyway, I'm just saying that's the woman they put in solitary confinement for two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. when they released her, she got back in the general population again. Um, but shortly afterwards, she got a shock. In the mid-1940s, Ruth's own elderly mother was committed to the hospital alongside her daughter. Whoa. Ruth's dad had died a few years earlier. And like we said in the last episode, they had lost all their money trying to support Ruth in Arizona. So they didn't have... During her trial. Right, during her her trial and stuff like that. So they didn't have anything left. And Ruth's 80-year-old mother was struggling with senility and homelessness. So they admitted her mother. And at first, Ruth took care of her completely. She slept in the same room with her mom. She bathed her. She did everything with her mom, fed her, advocated for her, sewed her clothes, did everything she could for her mother. But a new hospital administration took over and they just put a stop to that. First, Ruth was banned from caring for her mother or nursing her in any way. And then they started restricting her visitation with her mother. So the visitation started getting shorter and shorter until she wasn't even allowed a five-minute visit on Mother's Day, 1947. Just as a form of punishment, they're like, this is not healthy. Because, I mean, our other patients that aren't there for any criminal reasons also restricted from each other you know it's a, i can't answer that like yeah. with any certainty i think sure. that, that i can understand if they felt like she was overstepping some boundary but they allowed her to do it when it benefited them yeah you know the only person she wasn't allowed to nurse was her own mother but she's allowed to nurse like all these other patients so yeah right you know it is a, it's an odd choice it seems punitive yeah. at the very least it might be bureaucratic or something like yeah. that but that's the type of thing that happened in this hospital so you're talking about your 80 year old homeless mother yeah who is going through dementia possibly right and unable yeah. to take care of herself now <sighs> you're not even allowed to see if she's okay right and you're right next to each other So right after they denied her her visit on Mother's Day, Ruth escaped for a third time on May 11th, 1947 in retaliation. Hell yeah. They found her just a half day later, about 12 hours later. And when they brought her back, they agreed to let her see her mother. Although those visits were still sporadic. Mm -hmm. Now she kind of was like, I made my point, I guess. (laughs) They didn't put her back in solitary. Yeah. So a few years go by. And again, her access to her mother started to become restricted. And around the same time, a few of the nurses started a couple of rumors. They started a rumor that Ruth's mom had cancer and was dying. And then they started another rumor that Ruth was being transferred to a different hospital altogether and would never see her mother again. And by rumor, you mean they're just making that up to torment her? Yes. To torture her? They're not real. They're just that's they're just making it up. 
So after hearing these rumors, Ruth volunteered to work in the laundry room for about three days in a row. She, they, they needed people to work, and she mm. says, I'll do it. She worked like a maniac, right? She worked something like 12 hours a day just working it mm -hmm. off in this laundry room. No one noticed while, that while she was in the laundry room, she was just washing her own dress over and over <laughs> and over again for hours. Uh -huh. And on November 29th, 1951, Ruth said goodbye to her mother and then climbed out of her mother's window and down a rope of clothes she'd made from stolen garments <laughs> from the laundry room. Hell yeah. I, she's just doing all the classics, the fake body under the blanket, <laughs> you know, the towels tied together out the back window. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Oh, man. So another multiple police department manhunt with bloodhounds and the search later. Mm -hmm. And Ruth was found in just a couple of hours. She had broken into the house of one of the nurses she was friends with from the hospital. And she had stolen that nurse's fanciest clothes so like a fur coat and uh -huh. his boots and this big bright gaudy scarf and then she walked out in the middle of the daytime to the downtown federal building to mail some letters so she got all dressed up and then wrote a bunch of letters and then she went out to mail them uh-huh she got caught by police for wearing that bright, gaudy scarf and fur coat that had just been reported missing. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So basically, the nurse came home and she's like, oh, I've been burglared. Yeah. And she called police and said, somebody stole. These are the <laughs> items. And then Ruth is just strutting down. <laughs> yeah, trying to hide in, in plain sight. She's just in this, but like wearing a pretty, you know. Well, she's trying to look good, but also, I mean, was she doing that to have fun or was she doing that because she figured no one would question someone who was rich looking? Who knows? So, and were the letters, was she not allowed to send mail while I think she was that in there? there's just like, like irrational restrictions, mm -hmm. you know? I think she wanted to send letters to the governor. She was trying to mm -hmm. like, she's still trying to get her case into she, the forefront, yeah. right? Because at this time, people are kind of giving her the silent treatment. It's a little bit like, man, this lady's, story you know she brought all this bad publicity to phoenix mm -hmm. and now the world is outraged by the way we're treating her so mm -hmm. what's the best thing to do say she's crazy lock her up and throw away the key the old black belt rug sweep right and you know just for the record the nurse who she stole from yeah told police if she had known it was ruth who stole her clothes she never would have reported anything oh really she was just straight up publicly saying that. <laughs> so on february 2nd 1952 she escaped again this time managing to stay free for two months after two months she contacted police and she said i will turn myself in if i can testify in front of another grand jury i want to testify again and i want it to be about me and the commutation of my sentence mm -hmm. So this would be, they granted that. Really? Yep. She went wow. Back into That's negotiating with terrorists, kind of. And then this would be her second time now in front of a grand jury telling her story. Yeah. At this time, Ruth is now 47 years old. Uh -huh. So she testified for four hours and the jury once again believed her death sentence should be commuted. This time to, uh, to life with time served. So... Sentences were a lot different back then, mm -hmm. but back then for first degree murder, the average sentence was about 10 years. And at this point, Ruth had served 21 years mm -hmm. in the state hospital. So essentially, they were recommending, the parole board now was recommending that Ruth walk away a free woman. Yeah. So, I mean, the grand jury. 
So the grand jury takes their findings to the Arizona Board of Paroles and Pardons. And this time, the board finally recommended Ruth's commutation to the governor. So this is uh-huh. how many years later? 21 years later, the the board finally changes their mind. Mm-hmm. It's a brand new governor. It's yeah. a whole nother set of whatever. It's a new board. Right. Phoenix has, you know, crashed and burned and risen from the ashes three, four times by now. Good. Nikki. You know what I mean? <laughs> State officials from the governor's office and around and her lawyers, everyone told Ruth she would be released from the hospital, but she had to do one more sanity hearing as a formality. So basically, she has to go do a sanity hearing and prove that now she's sane. And then once she's back into the prison system, then her sentence can be commuted. Gotcha. Right? Oh, all she has to do is hold it together and not start start screaming about all her past grievances. Right. So the date of the sanity hearing, oh, no. it comes, she gets all dressed up no. and she's so excited. She sits in the lobby of the courthouse, but no one calls her name. No one comes to get her. In fact, no one says anything at all. They just took her back to the hospital and no one mentioned the sanity hearing again. What? They told her she was going to have one and they just didn't give it one. So she just had to go back. So now she what? Just she's had- just back to living in the insane asylum? Yes. They really are trying to make her insane. I mean, they satisfied the public's, you know, thirst uh-huh. for her release by yeah. giving her this hearing and recommending this thing. And they're like, great, there's just a couple formalities. And then they just never, they never gave her a hearing. Okay. So then what? She was like, okay, I'm uh, walking out that front door. I'll see you in the cornfields. Well, so... With no hope that being a model prisoner was somehow going to earn her a sanity hearing, she busted out of that bitch again. <laughs> this time she got a hole in a window screen over uh, the course of a few days, with like, like kind of um, Shawshank Redemption style. Hell yeah, yeah. A little toothpick action, a centimeter a day for 20 years or whatever. Yeah, so Thanksgiving 1954, Ruth had turkey with her mother, and then she wiggled out the screen in the bathroom that evening and ran away. She was caught 48 hours later and brought back. So yeah. her, it's, you know, there are little escapes, <laughs> yeah. but she's getting out there, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately her mother died in 1953. Yeah. On October 8th, 1962, 57-year-old Winnie Ruth Judd escaped for her seventh and final time. She wouldn't be found again for six and a half years years hell yeah now we're talking now i'm rooting for her man (laughs) her nephew helped bust her out this time so okay ruth opened her little coin purse she took out her magical key for the last time (laughs) she just never figured out (laughs) she walked out the front door of the hospital where her nephew was waiting in a running car bj had a son huh yeah so bj's son her nephew took ruth to an abandoned warehouse in the area so they had like a real plan yeah and they just held her there so they held her in this place while the dogs and everybody was searching for her again Mm -hmm. right and all these church ladies got together and brought ruth food to keep her alive so she had tons of support that sounds like sister act or something (laughs) all the nuns (laughs) well because her parents were like her dad was a minister and they Mm -hmm. were like into the church and when her parents were homeless in 
Arizona. Yeah. I think it was a Florence, Arizona, where the prison was. Yeah. All of the religious community got together and helped support them with food and places to stay. Where's her husband at in all this? He's floating. I think he's in LA. I mean, he, he was older than her. So he's hasn't died. He died at some point. I mean, he's also just doing a bunch of heroin. He wasn't doing Uh very much. Yeah. He definitely was there during her trials. I think when she got locked up, he kind of faded. Okay. There was a few times when she escaped where she was like going to try to get a hold of him, Uh but she didn't even have a phone number for him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she's got these church ladies coming in, dropping off meals, like hot dishes. Mm -hmm. She's eating them in this dark warehouse. And then finally, five days after her escape, Ruth was smuggled to her brother, Burton, in Oakland, California. All right. So she got out of she got out of Arizona for the first time. <sighs> so in order to survive in California, Ruth knew she needed a job. And even though she was a portly 57-year-old woman at this point, she didn't look anything like the Winnie Ruth Judd of the headlines. Yeah, right. She was still afraid of being recognized. So she figured out what she needed to do was to get an in-home caretaker position somewhere. And she was more than qualified after living and working at the state hospital for the insane, right? To nurse someone at their home. Not on paper. Yeah, but she has the skills to do it. Like, I mean, this Uh is not like, this is not at the time when you needed like a certification. (laughs) Yeah, no one was checking your Indeed profile or something. No, no, no. And, you know, being an in-home caretaker would minimize her interactions with people who might recognize her because Mm -hmm. she'd be living in the same place. She wouldn't be commuting as often. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she changed her name to Marion Lane, which was a favorite name of hers. Okay. And she went to an employment office to see if somebody could get her work. And this chick won the straight-up lottery. She got a job as a live-in caretaker of an older millionaire woman who lived in a 23-room mansion on the San Francisco Bay. Oh, my God, I want that job. (laughs) Her name was Ethel Nichols, and uh, Ruth would call her Mother Nichols. So she's this kind widow who came from very, very old money. So she's just living in the lap of luxury? She was given a private suite off of the fancy ass garden they had in the middle of the courtyard. Yeah. Um, they went to concerts together and movies together, being chauffeured in a limousine because she was just her companion. Yeah, right. Uh, they ate off of like real china and sterling silver. All the rooms were decorated in crystal chandeliers and two miniature poodles frolicked around the house. <laughs> she legit lived down yeah. the street from yeah. the Oppenheimer family. Oh, hell yeah. And the Gerber baby food family. <laughs> the Gerbers. <laughs> the Gerbers. Now, That's such a funny name for fancy rich people. <laughs> we're going to the Gerbers for dinner tonight. Mm. <laughs> You're being- <laughs> offensive all right <laughs> ruth made about four hundred dollars a month okay so that's about thirty seven hundred dollars in today's money mm-hmm. plus on top of that all her room and board was covered so she didn't have to pay for anything that's just on top of what she was making that is freaking rocks so she was making above room and board yeah forty eight hundred dollars a year right the average single person at the time was only making 3000 annually. Whoa. So she was just making a great salary and had no expenses. Right. Plus, Mother Nichols brought Ruth all like these beautiful clothes. She brought her a fur coat. She bought 
paid for all of her uniforms and all of her aprons and stuff like hey, that. I swear to God, if anyone here is listening <laughs> and you live in a huge mansion and you're like, I want some podcasters to live here room and board and I'm going to pay them $3,700 a month to do their podcast. Muriel and I will move in. We will and go. And I'll like a nickel garden and I'll cook for you, okay? Yeah, so and I'll be your bodyguard. Yeah. Muriel will sing you lullabies at night. We got a lot of talents. Okay. Now. We have this cute little kitten we'll bring with us. Come on now. So Ruth's job was to do very light cleaning and then the cooking for the house. They had mm. a laundry person, a gardener, and a chauffeur. And then they had like an actual cleaning crew come in once a week. So all she had to do was like make sure the clothes were picked up and stuff. Mm-hmm. Ruth hadn't cooked in like 30 years. So what she did is she just got all these cookbooks and she would go to bed every single night just reading cookbooks and cramming. Don't even act like this isn't kind of your dream come she true. De- isn't- she was determined to knock this thing out of the park, right? Yeah. And Mother Nichols, she loved to entertain. So really soon after she got there, Ruth was known in the neighborhood for throwing these beautiful, extravagant tea parties for up to 80 people. They were like... Oh my God, Mother Nichols got the best new girl. She can make these tea sandwiches. They're crazy. Like they're just going crazy. Well, probably she was doing her hair and making her look all good too. Yeah, yeah. Women from the neighborhood, like the Oppenheimers, Uh would legit come to Ruth and be like, Can I can you make me some cookies? Because my husband wants me to bring some home. So she would make cookies for these ladies to bring home to their husband. Damn, man. Some people just rise to the occasion. She really, I mean, I was like, what? So when Ruth turned 60, she decided to keep on chugging. She went back to school. Uh She went to night school. And (laughs) tried to learn how to type finally. (laughs) No, she went to night school for medical assistance. Uh So I think she was feeling like now she can really up her nursing game too. Mm -hmm. So as Mother Nichols gets older, she can take better care of her. Mother Nichols wanted to make sure Ruth was really taken care of in her old age. So she willed Ruth all the furniture in her suite. So that's a really big deal. It's sure. like basically because Ruth doesn't own anything. Yeah. And everything is so everything is in this suite is not hers. But that's like beautiful mirrors, chandeliers, rugs, you know, everything. Like yeah, couches, antiques. her bed, you know, yeah. everything that was in there. The idea being like you can sell this and be taken care of. No, the idea is like you have a full living room set. Like now, now if you have to go move into somewhere else, Mm. you're completely set up because she also willed her $10,000, which is close to about $100,000 in today's money. Sweet. 90K. Nice. So, and that's on top of social security. So she's like, I love you. Well, and the bank account, she's just been able to pile up because she doesn't have to pay rent or anything. Right. So Ruth, AKA Marion Lane, became like a family to Mother Nichols and her extended family. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Mother Nichols and her daughter, Ethel Blemmer, decided to build Ruth a beautiful little cottage on some farmland that Ethel Blemmer owned with her husband. Mm-hmm. The farmland was just north of San Francisco in this beautiful valley, and that was where Ruth was going to retire. Mother Nichols died in 1967 and Ruth retired at the age of 64 to this gorgeous little house with orange trees out front, a garden, a dog run for her dogs to run around, all her furniture, and then her money. 
right? Yeah, 64 is young too, man. You get all these good years ahead of you. Yeah, she said, it was, and she could sit in her kitchen and just like look over this valley, like unobstructed <sighs> view. Unbelievable. In June of that year, while she was still unpacking, she had a friend over for lunch. It was one of her rich lady friends from back in the neighborhood uh -huh. where she used to live with Mother Nichols. So it was like a lady, right? Yeah, 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 and she's yeah. like, oh, I have to see where you live. So she yeah. came out and, you know, she's still living out of boxes and she, the lady comes out with her maid and her chauffeur and she's like, I don't have any food. So <laughs> she like got this um, chicken salad together uh -huh. and they all got on the porch and are eating chicken salad and talking. And as they're talking, a cop car pulls up the driveway. And Ruth goes and talks to them for a second. And then she comes back. She's like, you know, I've got to take off. I'm so sorry. She tells the Blummer's housekeeper, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of days. But don't worry about it. I'm locking up the house. Mm -hmm. She locks up the house. She gets her two little dogs. And she jumps in the back of the squad car. So... Ruth gets to the station and she's just Marion Lane. That's what she's telling them. Mm -hmm. I'm Marion Lane. That's all I know. I don't know why you're calling me. And they keep saying, do you know of a woman named Ruth or Winnie uh, Ruth Judd, right? Yeah, she says, yeah. no, no, no. I'm Marion Lane. I, I've heard of her in the papers. Mm -hmm. But the jig's up pretty quickly. So this is what happened. Ruth's nephew, the guy who helped her out six years earlier, had basically been low-key extorting her into sending him money. Mm, yeah. And eventually, yeah. Ruth bought him a car as a sort of lump sum payoff, okay. like around the time that she retired. <sighs> Those dirty nephews, man. The car was registered under alias Marion Lane, the same alias she had used 30 years before when she was picked up after escaping to Yuma. Okay. So the car was found at a murder scene in San Francisco. And when they went through the car, they found a registration card with the name Marion Lane on it. Mm -hmm. And the, just so happened, the cop who found the registration card had at some point worked in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he recognized that as some sort of alias. Yeah. It like knocked around in his brain. Yeah. And he's like, I don't think that this is a real person. Mm-hmm. Did the nephew kill someone? No. So they don't get anywhere with questioning her. They end up fingerprinting her. And that's when they find out sweet old retired Marion Lane was actually escaped drunk murderer <laughs> Winnie Ruth Jett. And And Mother Nichols passed away without ever knowing the difference, yeah, right? Totally, Good. Right? Good. So when Ruth was arrested, yeah. Mother Nichols' daughter, Ethel, and John Blemmer were on vacation in Europe. They were in Belgium. Of course they were. And they were like hanging out in their ritzy hotel and they see uh, Marion's <laughs> picture on the front page of the newspaper. It yeah. was headline Winnie Ruth Judd. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, that's Marion. Yeah. And you know, like they're totally shocked. So they fly straight back to the US. They go down to the police station. They retrieve Ruth's dogs from the police and they make their position very clear. They are 100% with Ruth. Uh -huh. They are with her till the end. Even if they're like, we know it's her, we don't care. Yeah. She took too good of my mom. Yeah. My mom loved her. We loved her. Like Marion, like Marion as they knew her, Ruth yeah. would like make their children dolls and clothes for their dolls. Yeah, and like right. spend every Christmas with them together for six years. You know, like she was a huge part of the family. I mean, if we're going to believe what I think the narrative is, is Winnie 
Ruth Judd was basically a really good person who at some point got into a fight with her friends, threatened to expose all these dirty secrets about their friends, which really would have cast them out into the homelessness and like a horrible, a horrible existence for these two women. The most fragile of the two who was basically in an attempt to defend Anne, who had been taking care of her, pulls a gun. Yeah. There's a fight. Yeah. And Ruth wins the fight. Right. So, and then after that, does a bunch of crazy shit, like <laughs> probably chops up their bodies and puts them in trunks and tries to like hide it kind of, but doesn't really try to hide it in any smart way. Like just does some sort of like inept job of dealing with the situation. So if that's the narrative we're going with, basically she had like one bad night. <laughs> You know, because you started this episode out saying she's faking the whole thing. I didn't say she was faking. I'm just saying that's one way to look at it because she could have manipulated. I mean, she's obviously lying to these people. All right, we're saving this to the end. So I hear what you're saying, and it's a good point. But see, I do think I hear a little change of heart in here. So I'm just saying. I'm just saying I'm, (laughs) I'm rooting for her, obviously, but clearly I want also... Anne and Sammy to not have been murdered. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. And to also have a really cool, you know, late stage in life, like comeback victory. Yeah, right. Anyways. Okay, so we're going to keep going with the story. Is that okay? Uh, <laughs> it's, I'm pretty sure I just buttoned it up perfectly, Mary. <laughs> I'm pretty so, sure. Okay. okay, the Blemmers helped Ruth hire one of the most famous defense attorneys in the country. There we go. His name was Melvin Belly, mm-hmm. and he was a showman known for being way over the top, and he liked Ruth's style. Mm-hmm. So Belly immediately gets in. He's like a bulldog. He fights Ruth's extradition to Arizona. Mm-hmm. He says, just leave her alone, right? And he's leave her in California. He calls, like publicly calls Arizona's obsession with her sadistic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Ooh, I used that word earlier. <laughs> Ronald Reagan uh-huh. was now the governor of Arizona. Arizona or California? California. Oops. You're welcome. I'm leaving this in because I just want everyone to know that I knew that. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Ronald Reagan who's now the governor of California. And despite Belly's fiery tone, Reagan extradited her anyway. (laughs) Okay. And Ruth reluctantly went back to the Sonoran Desert. Uh Uh-huh. So Belly decided to do the opposite of what Ruth's previous attorneys did. He went straight to the press. His first move was to take Ruth's story to the public Mm -hmm. and book an hour-long interview with her on a Phoenix television station. KTAR-TV gave Winnie Ruth Judd, then and now, a full hour in primetime. And it was hosted by the state's most popular news anchor at the time. So Belly argued, quote, if she was guilty of the crime, she has done her time three times over in California and Arizona. Seven to 10 to 12 years would be the most in a first degree case. She's done 38 years. I don't know anyone else, at least in the West, that has done more time for murder than Mrs. Judd. Hmm. And then after he says this, Belly looked straight into the camera and he says, quote, I have never in 30 years of practice had so many people phone me, 
write me from all over the West, people who knew her or knew where she worked and people who had just heard about her saying she's done her time. If jails and asylums aren't hypocrisy, then this woman who has done her time and is penally and psychiatrically rehabilitated should be out, hmm. right? All He's right. saying like, yeah. come on, man. Right. <laughs> who cares that she escaped? Right. I mean, I think his point is like, okay, so he ser- she served three times the length of the average sentence at the time. Yeah. And then at the yeah, end, yeah. she got a, like a really great job with a family who <laughs> loves her. Yeah, and yeah. they're like, how is, so obviously she's not crazy. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that is the other side of it. I mean, what you're saying, it's like, who cares? <laughs> she escaped. Um, so unfortunately, Ruth got super nervous and was a very crappy interview yet again. She just shoots herself in the foot. She just can't she do can't. that. She yeah. rambles a lot and she it's really hard for her to stay on topic and mm. she has things she doesn't like to talk about things she will talk about. Yeah. And most of her grievances are just like off topic. Right? <laughs> she's still doing the grievance thing. Yeah. She's got a lot of grievances. I mean, you know, she's <laughs> yeah. I get it. Uh. So she was rambling and confused. Well, but she ended up telling the whole story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just for the record, every time in that interview, she said Jack Halloran's name, they dubbed it out with John Doe. So they really were mm. still like, protecting him or protecting his friends from ever having whatever, known him. Whatever it is, yeah. they keep wiping him out. Yeah. Right Now, Ruth's interview was really helpful. And Belly was a great advocate for her. But the other thing that they did during this news program is they intercut her interview with an interview with a retired Phoenix area cop who claimed to have worked on the case, although his name appears in exactly zero police documents. So he said he was there the whole time, but he's not Mm -hmm. like he was never officially there in any capacity. Yeah. So this guy got up there and he was also really effective. He forcefully tells the audience that the prosecution's original theory that Ruth killed these girls while they were sleeping in bed was 100% true. That's the way it was, you know, that's the way it went down. And he also misstated several pieces of key evidence, like saying the body was hacked instead of like surgically dissected Uh uh and saying, oh, well, we found the mattresses. She tried to dispose of them and they were bloody and full of bullet holes, which is absolutely not true. But he sounded very convincing. So there's this kind of, you know, Will they or won't they sort of thing? Yeah, right. Fair and balanced journalism. We're telling both <laughs> sides of the story. They're like, well, this one side is really wrong. Like, both sides. <laughs> oh, Lord. So they let it go, mm-hmm. right? They got the interview out there. You know, Belly's trying to get ahead of everything, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and turn the tide towards Ruth. But, you know, it's in Jesus' hands now. After the interview, they got some good news. According to writing by Jana Bombersbach, quote, Arizona Attorney General Gary Nelson declared that the law was clear. Ruth must get credit as time served for the years she spent in the hospital. Subtracting the time away from the hospital in her seven escapes, that amounted to 29 years and 154 days. Nelson noted that prisoners sentenced to life terms served on the average from eight to 10 years. Winnie Ruth Judd had already served the equivalent of three life terms. So Nelson hinted broadly that Arizona could hardly ask for more. Mm-hmm. So essentially she's getting more people on her side. Like the, the Arizona attorney general is publicly saying, yeah, we should not continue to charge her. Yeah. 
So the first thing that the lawyers really did in Phoenix after this TV interview uh-huh. was they got Ruth her sanity hearing. The sanity hearing she was promised 17 years earlier. Okay. So the order of operations with this, she first had to be declared back to sane. Then she would be sent back to prison. And then the governor could pardon her. Okay. Right? Yes. So she couldn't, there was still, the sanity hearing still was a step we had to do. Oh, and she doesn't have a good history with things like this. (laughs) Well, Uh Ruth got her sanity hearing and surprise, they actually found her sane fairly quickly. All right. She was then immediately sent to the state prison in Florence, Arizona, back to where she started. Mm -hmm. As soon as Ruth was locked up, her attorneys filed for a commutation of her sentence, and they would have to wait 66 days for the next parole board hearing. And then everyone assumed she was going to have her freedom. (sighs) So... Just as a side note, prison was completely different than it was some 30 years uh, uh-huh. prior. Yeah. It was a super scary place for an older woman like Ruth this time around. She was targeted in prison. Sure. She was pushed around. People oh. thought she had money, so a lot uh-huh. of people were trying to extort her. Yeah. Uh, and she really couldn't get to wait, like, wait to get out of there. She was saying, okay, I just have to serve these next three months, and then I can get out. Yeah. That's so scary. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. I just have to survive 66 days. And then I can do it. Whoa. On the date of the parole board hearing, October 27th, 1969, board members opened the hearing with a group prayer. Not supposed to do that. (laughs) (laughs) One after another, people filed in to tell the board Ruth was, quote, completely rehabilitated. John and Ethel Blemmer spoke on her behalf about how well she cared for their aging mother. They promised that they would provide everything Ruth would need in her old age so she wouldn't be a burden on the state. Mm -hmm. Um, Doctors from the state hospital testified, many, many others. And the board took all that information and voted two to one to deny her parole. She would have to spend another full year in prison before her case was considered again. What? Yeah. That's you know what that sounded like to me. That sounds like way back that that shady juror who was like, "Hey, I know how we can get we what we <laughs> want. Let's give her the death penalty." Yeah. And they're like, "Hey, I know what we can do. Let's make sure she's sane so she goes back to jail and then she'll get out." <laughs> it's pretty like, are you kidding me? Right? <laughs> what the hell is up with these parole boards? So this is what the parole board said. This is their uh-huh. their statement. The board finds that Mrs. Judd in the past has been the benefactor of much gracious and charitable treatment, far in excess of that usually granted to one guilty of so grave an offense. From the standpoint of punishment and incarceration, Mrs. Judd has been very fortunate indeed. She completely escaped the verdict of the jury and the penalty to hang prescribed by it, whether by subterfuge or providence. While in the Arizona State Hospital, she enjoyed privileges not extended to like inmates. To observe the application of punishment in this case from beginning to end, one wonders if it could not be singled out as the case more disposed to induce and encourage crime rather than to act as a preventative. Hmm. 
So they just, just look at hard this. asses. Yeah, I get yeah, it. I right? get it. Yeah. So that's their stance. Like, yeah, she got to do everyone's hair and go to the dances all those Sundays. Well, because she never should have been there in the first place. Yeah. You know, but she only got there in the first place because she was real bad in that sanity hearing. Mm. All right. So Ruth went back to work. This time she started working nursing in the prison hospital. Uh-huh. She made some friends. And she put her head down and made it through the year. She got her second parole hearing in February of 1971. In addition to all of the evidence in her favor and strong legal claims, the parole board again was floated with letters of support for Ruth. And most of them were families of the people who Ruth cared for at the asylum between her escapes. Yeah. Vulnerable people, she bathed and she nursed. They said that she grew flowers in the hospital garden and then she would cut bouquets and bring them into the elderly patient wing for bedridden patients. Uh, she read to them. She would help them eat, figure out things they could eat when they didn't have, like, they couldn't chew. Yeah. Ruth, at one point, took care of six babies all on her own, doing all the changing, feeding, bathing, everything when the children's ward was too full. So yeah. there was nowhere for them to go. She sewed dresses for the young women in the hospital to make them feel beautiful. She would craft decorations and do all of these like little beautiful crafts and then hang them up in people's rooms around mm-hmm. the hospital, just trying to make it like a more pleasant place to be. The parole board's like, she should have been lifting weights on the basketball courts and getting into gang fights. Yeah, she's like Mother Teresa meets Mary Poppins, (laughs) but also with some like murders. (laughs) Yeah. So after hearing all of this, Mm -hmm. the board voted two to one again, this time in Ruth's favor. So she got out. Yes. Well, no, she didn't get out. They just they recommended to the governor. Oh, okay. The governor still has to pull the trigger for the pardon. Right. But okay. they recommend it. Finally, they say, okay, we're uh-huh. ready to recommend it. Uh-huh. And they admit, you know, she served more time than anyone else in, in possibly in the history of Arizona up until that point. And that basically we're starting to understand as history goes by that this is just becoming this intense persecution of like an elderly grandmother yeah yeah. like the book that i read for this episode or this case yeah talks about how on the same night a jealous boyfriend in arizona the same night that uh sammy and ann were killed yeah in the same kind of area this guy was super jealous because his girlfriend was cheating on him and he stabbed her to death yeah he got out in eight years what? He got first degree murder and he was out in eight years. So that's why they're saying yeah, right, this is like yeah. getting to the point where like, well, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think she gets to leave now. <laughs> so we get here. Finally, all Ruth and her team needed was for the current governor, Jack Williams, to take the recommendation from the board of pardons or whatever. And commute her sentence. Mm-hmm. Guess how fucking long that took. <laughs> Ten years. He refused to sign it. Months went by. Jack Williams was this conservative governor who wanted to appear really tough on crime. Yeah. And he yeah. wanted some sort of stipulation that, I don't know, Ruth would have to serve a month for every year she had escaped or something. He was just like, give her more. Yeah. And as people mounted pressure against him, he kind of 
enjoyed it. He dug his heels in harder, right? So Right, it looks like, because if that's his cause and everyone's like, be nice, be nice. He's like, no, then that makes his cause seem all the more righteous or right. like he's better at fighting it. Right, right, yeah. right. So it was very like snake eating its own tail. Mm-hmm. So 10 months go by. And eventually, after some really heavily contentious interactions with Ruth's lawyer, Belly, the governor tells Ruth that as long as Belly was her attorney, he would never sign her commutation papers. So Ruth fired Belly on the spot, and she was released from prison at 2 a.m. on December 22nd in 1971 under the cover of night. Like, they huh. did. he did not want to act like he did this thing. So yeah. There were no reporters, nothing. And he didn't want like this big fancy California lawyer to show up and like get his client out. Yeah. He's like, that's not how we do business in Arizona. Fire her. We'll let you, yeah. you fire yeah, him. Yeah, we'll yeah. let you out at 2 a.m. Her shady ass nephew picked her up outside the prison <laughs> in a car. Yeah. And 66 year old Ruth Winnie Judd went back to California. She showed up at Ethel and John Blemmer's farm on a rainy Christmas Eve to a warm house full of presents. Mm-hmm. And she spent 10 great years on the Blemmer farm until Ethel Blemmer died in 1981. And it turns out her husband, John Blemmer, was a huge asshole. So despite both Ethel... Well, as long as Winnie doesn't kill her, as long as Ruth doesn't kill her. Despite both Ethel and Mother Nichols promising Ruth a forever retirement home, John Blemmer Mm. evicted Ruth from the cottage as soon as Ethel died. In 1982, at the age of 77, Ruth sued John Blemmer and was awarded a $50,000 settlement, about $135,000 in today's money, Mm -hmm. plus a lifetime monthly payment of $1,250. So she had to leave her beautiful cottage, but she moved into a large two-bedroom apartment in Stockton, California with a patio and Mm -hmm. a little garden. And she carved herself out of life. Ruth went back to Phoenix a few years before her death, where she died October 23rd, 1998, at the age of 93. So, to finish this off, Mm -hmm. Jana Bombersbach, the author of the book we read, she added a really interesting epilogue to her book. Okay. So, we're just going to touch on these things really briefly, and then... This might answer some of your questions or might inform your feelings about this case. Okay. I just think you might want to hear them. Of course I do. So. (laughs) (laughs) On this damn far. Of course I want the epilogue. (laughs) So. Jana Bombersbach thinks there's a strong basis for the idea that Ruth may not have killed Anne. Mm -hmm. So. Early news stories reporting the autopsies from the Los Angeles Times, the Los Angeles Examiner, the Phoenix Gazette, and the Arizona Republic all say Ann and Sammy were killed with two different guns. So this all came out right at the beginning. Right. They said the coroner reported a 25 caliber gun made the wound in Ruth's hand and killed Sammy, but Ann was killed with a 32 caliber gun. But in her investigation... The official written autopsy records don't list any caliber of bullet at all. Mm-hmm. They just say, quote, bullet wound. Yeah. In the trial testimony of Ruth's murder trial, the caliber of the actual death bullets is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. 
They say there were 25 caliber bullets found in the trunk with the bodies and that there was a 24 caliber gun, but no one during the trial actually said the wounds were made with a 25 caliber bullet. The LA coroner's department and the LAPD have no files at all on the Judd case, even though the bodies were discovered there. So mm-hmm. somehow they were shipped away, shipped back to Arizona, but those files don't exist in the Los Angeles system. Mm-hmm. So the answer for all of this could just be mistakes, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. a mistake on the reporter's side or on the autopsy surgeon's side, but there were no corrections ever printed yeah so nobody said now oh they're saying it's this Mm -hmm. the mention of the 32 caliber gun was just wiped from the media yeah nobody mentioned it again also the ballistics in sammy's death match up with ruth's description of the fight on the floor in which both women were shot yeah but regardless of the caliber of bullet that killed Anne. She was shot through the head from behind at a downward angle. Yeah, you said that a while ago. With the muzzle of her head. Yeah. Like muzzle of the gun against her head. So there's no way that Ruth could have done that from her position on the floor. Yeah. So that's the idea is that potentially (sighs) Mm -hmm. someone like Jack Halloran came, walked in on them during the fight and shot Anne in the back. But Ruth never said that. She kept that part quiet. She's never said it. But it could explain why Jack was so like, oh, we have to get rid of all these bodies and why he was like, I'm going to go to this. Involve myself. Yeah. And then show up at the court and like laugh the whole time and keep driving her crazy and show up to the dances and, you know, make her seem all the more insane. Right. I mean, it's like to me, I would Mm -hmm. think, okay, maybe he got involved because he really cared for Sam and Ann. You know, Sammy and Ann, like that he felt he wanted to just, he didn't want them to be found in this way or he cared for all three women or there was some sort of motivation like that. But I mean, what's the motivation of just torturing? What would the motivation be to torture Ruth on the stand and torture her in these places? Like why would he continue to go after her? And he was going hunting that weekend, so we know he has guns. Yep. There's an amateur historian and former Phoenix police chief named Hugh Ennis who studied this case really in depth, and he had a couple of really interesting takeaways. Mm -hmm. So he believes the crappy investigation and the freak show of a trial were part of a political cover-up. He says cops knew Happy Jack, and they knew who his girlfriends were. The the cops knew everything that was going on. And they also knew who Happy Jack introduced to his girlfriends. So all that knowledge was kind of like, you know, this open secret. Mm -hmm. Ennis also found in his investigative work an old police report in which Anne was somehow caught up with a dude in a downtown hotel and accused of prostitution. Mm -hmm. And the soon-to-be chief of police at the time, so this like uprising star, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote handled the situation. So there were no formal charges filed. There's just this police report. But that incident happened just a couple months before Anne was killed. Mm-hmm. So possibly she was up to some different nefarious activities. Right. And so his theory is they were maybe po- caught up in some blackmailing scheme, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe regarding the sale of narcotics or possibly an abortion ring that involved Dr. Brown. Mm. But all that stuff is really just speculation. Yeah. Yeah. He feels like there's something like a lot 
deeper mm-hmm. that the girls were involved with than they had knowledge of. Yeah. Um, and that's why they were killed. He doesn't even think that Ruth pulled the trigger. So if that's the case, then Ruth herself might be hiding a deep secret too, not just protecting someone, but maybe she was involved in something even darker and deeper and crazier. Yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. I mean, that, that has just never been answered. And the only people person alive to answer it was Ruth. Yeah. You know, she refused to say so much about the case. Like in order, like for them to get her to just even admit that she unpacked the bodies yeah. was like pulling teeth yeah. because she had to be the one to do it. Yeah. But they were just trying to be like, did you cut the bodies or did you unpack them? How did you get the bodies out of the trunk? Yeah. You know, she had this, a very hard time talking about the night of the killings. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would too. I don't know. I feel like you're pretty cold blooded. <laughs> so that's it. That's it. Huh? <sighs> Winnie Ruth Judd, what was she? A freaking conniving, murderous person. Maybe she really was just way, way deep in the illegal deer meat market. You know, maybe. She could have been. Maybe, maybe she. What do you really think? What do you think? Do you think that she made it all up? Do you think she's like a cold blooded murderer? No, I kind of don't. I think the self-defense thing makes the most sense Mm -hmm. to me. That's what it sounds like. But I also think that she was protecting Happy Jack or someone else from something that equaled some secret shit that she was hiding. Okay. Okay. Now. Okay. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe Dr. Brown was the one giving her husband all the morphine and the drugs and keeping him addicted. You know what I mean? There's a lot of conspiracies. I don't know. I don't actually feel good about saying any of that. I think maybe she was just a nice old lady. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know. know. I don't um, know. I want to also, I feel kind of crunchy. So uh-huh. I, I feel like I did definitely try my best, but I hope I didn't butcher any of these legal terms. We have uh, a listener who offered to help me whenever mm-hmm. I was confused by like, how does the trial work? Yeah. And this in particular yeah was a case where I was literally writing these scripts and I was like, damn, I should have texted her. <laughs> yeah. Why did I text her? So I tried my best. But if you're listening to this, you're like, girl, that is not how the trial works. Listen, I'm here to give you titillating details and some facts. <laughs> but I really did try my hardest. I read that. I read the hell out of that book. I know you did good. Muriel, tell the people one last time what book are you talking about. The Trunk Murderess by Jana Bombersbach. I would check it out if you like old-timey murders. And even just like, come on, this story is so insane. And there's so much we couldn't cover, like little details and uh-huh. different things. Uh-huh. So, you know, if this story was really fun for you and you want to read the book, you definitely will still get more out of the book. Ugh. Damn. All right. Good job, Muriel. All right. We did it. That's it. Part three. We're done. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders.
We draw and animate little bonus content for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open. We love getting your emails. That address is murders at gmail.com. Check out some NFTs. Check out some t-shirts. Those links are in the show notes of this episode. And you know what? Rate and review this. If you've been enjoying yourself, just give us a little five-star love on Apple Podcasts. It actually really does help us grow. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening on Spotify, nowadays you can rate us on Spotify. Isn't that so fun? You, you couldn't do it before, but now yeah. you can. Wow. So check it out. New fun activities. Yeah. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And Lord knows I don't need to hear us talk anymore. But if you are just like, wow, I'm so interested in Nick and Muriel's non-murder podcast, find Hella in your 30s wherever you listen to podcasts. Nick is a salty, salty editor. All right. Good night. Bye. I'm Brian Husky. I'm bald. And I'm Charlie Sanders, and I'm also bald. And we host Bald Talk on the Campfire Media Network. Bald Talk is the podcast where two bald comedians talk to anyone bald about being bald. But this show isn't just for baldies, Brian. Harrows will love it, too. Bald Talk gets into vulnerability, vanity, insecurity, and self-acceptance, reminding us that we all have our respective bald spots. Not that bald spots are a bad thing. No way. I mean, my entire head is one big bald spot. It is one huge, beautiful bald spot, Charlie. Get Bald Talk on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I I have like a little bit of hair, but not like you. Like you're really bald. I'm truly bald. Great. I mean, it's I'm great. I'm balder than it. you. You are balder than me. Only on Bald Talk. Campfire. <laughs>